the following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, April 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Easter Sunday gathering of Redemption Hill Church. It's so good to see all of your faces. Do me a favor, if you would, go ahead and Just take your Bibles out or or whatever you use to access God's Word at this moment. Take that out and go to John chapter 20. For those who don't know me, my name's Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. That's where we'll start at least. And I'm going to read the better part of that chapter. So I want you to follow along. We're going to start in John chapter 20 verse 1. And then after that, I'll pray, and then we'll see what God wants to do with the rest of our time. So join me in there, John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Pause. Now, I I don't know who they is to Mary. I'm not sure who she has in mind. But clearly, she believes somebody has gone in and has taken the body of Jesus. That's her initial explanation for the emptiness of the tomb. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Now, you've got to love this. Enjoy this moment. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Uh, Because John, who is writing this, and he'll identify himself as the disciple Jesus loved in the next chapter, at the end of his gospel account in John chapter 21. But you've got to love how John recounts this story. I mean, think about this. This is going to be included in the Bible at some point. John doesn't know that yet, but that's where it's going to end up. And, and watch what he's doing. As he speaks about one of the most, really along with the cross, the most important event in all of human history. L- listen to what John does. He repeatedly reminds us that he beat Peter in a foot race. <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in... He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Just kind of mark that that word saw there. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, mark that saw, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8, then the other disciple... Who had reached the tomb first? (laughs) He also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must first rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And by the way, verse 10, just as a quick aside, if this is just a myth or a legend, you don't have verse 10. That's way too practical. That's, this really happened. They, they did this, and then they went back to their homes. And this detail is not there, but as we, as we continue, I would imagine that on their way back to their homes, Peter and John 
stopped to check in on Mary who was weeping at the tomb. I can't imagine they just left and left her there without saying anything. She probably said, no, I'm all right. I just want to be here for a little while. At the very least, John would have done that. Peter, I don't know. But, but John, at the very least. So verse 11, let's pick it up. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Let me pause real quick and just remind you. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple, on the top of that Ark of the Covenant, you actually had two angels, cherubim, who would face each other and look down toward the the center of that, that lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And every year when the blood of the atonement was sprinkled on that cover of the Ark of the Covenant, those two angels, as it were, were kind of looking and, and watching for that blood. <clears throat> I can't prove this to you, but I, but I think what's happening here is we're seeing the reality that was foreshadowed by that Ark. That here we're seeing two angels, one on the head, one at the foot, right there where the real blood that sanctifies God's people was put. Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus Now, I'm not exactly sure why she was unable to recognize the Lord in this moment. I know it was dark when she first got to the tomb, but maybe by now, maybe by now it's it's starting to get light. Maybe the glare of the sun is is already in play. Maybe she's looking due east right at Jesus and the, the sun is obscuring her view. Maybe he's at quite a distance. I'm not sure. Maybe he's wearing a gardener's hat and that's why she thought he was a gardener. I have no clue why she is unable to recognize Jesus in this moment. But that's the detail we're given. She's unable to recognize him, at least initially. And, and she doesn't know it's him. And in verse 15, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. You have to imagine he said it in a particular way that removed all doubt about who he was. She had heard Mary spoken by many people. She had also heard it spoken by Jesus many times. And when he said Mary, she knew exactly who it was. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, which was a normal greeting in that time in that culture. It would be like us showing up uh, in the most 
incredible, amazing, miraculous moment ever. The greatest thing in the world has just happened and it would be like us showing up on the tail end of that and saying, hey guys, what's up? Peace be with you. And when he had said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. This is why he gets the name Doubting Thomas. And by the way, I love the fact that even though Thomas was a skeptic, he still found himself in the company of believers who were convinced. And I would encourage, if you're a skeptic, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Continue to place yourself in the company of those who are convinced of things that you're still searching out. So Thomas, this time, was with them, and although the doors were locked... Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So again, Jesus did not need an angel to roll away the stone for him to get out. He was not like Lazarus who was raised from the dead and needed people to undo his grave clothes. No, Jesus was perfectly fine. He could have walked right out of that stone without it being removed. It didn't matter. Jesus comes in. He says, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, I think Jesus showed up specifically for Thomas on this day. He knows exactly what Thomas has been saying, and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not correct him when Thomas calls him God. He receives Thomas's worship. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for bringing all of us here this morning um, to see, as it were, an instant replay of, of this most significant event in all of, in all of history, along with Jesus' cross and when I say that, I know, I know how silly that sounds to some people right now, because like Thomas, they, they find themselves in the place of a, of a skeptic. But I also know that you have the power to take truth like this all the way into our hearts, I mean, to the very place where we are, we are actually capable of believing in your son, Jesus, even if we never have before where we're capable of receiving his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And so I ask you to do that today for so many of us. Whether they're here with us this morning or, or they're hearing a message like this about your son's resurrection uh, in another church here in Richmond or somewhere else, Lord, I, I pray that you would be kind and merciful to all those in the position of an unbelieving soul or a skeptic and cause them to see you in a way they never have before. And then for all, for all of us who have already come to faith in, in Jesus at some point in the past, Father, I pray that you would cause us to remember that the resurrection means that Jesus is alive. He is actually alive. And that should make all the world of difference to us. 
it should help us to remember that as a result of the fact that he is still alive, we can have a real and living and growing relationship with him. We can spend time with him. He can speak to us. We can speak to him. We can know the deep fellowship we were always created to enjoy with him. So help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we walk with you in this life. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, with the rest of our time, I want to just answer two questions. Number one, why, why do Christians like us believe that it is reasonable, reasonable to believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? I know it's not an everyday thing that we see someone who has died come back to life, but why do Christians like us, and why have Christians like us for centuries on end now, believe that it is reasonable to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ? And the second question I want to answer will follow that. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for all of us today? All right, let me take that first one. Let me start there. Why is it reasonable for us to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus, that this is an actual historical event that took place? A dead man was raised, not just in spirit, but his body was raised as well, and he is alive now. I believe that with all my heart. And part of the reason I believe that, this is not the only reason, but part of the reason I believe that, and why so many of us across the world believe that, is because of some of the evidence that we see right here in this passage. And for time's sake, I'm just going to mention the two that jump out to us in this passage. The first piece of evidence is his empty tomb. And the second piece of evidence is the reality of multiple eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Let me start with that empty tomb. Now, nobody nobody disputes the fact that the tomb to which Mary Magdalene and the other disciples, Peter and John, the tomb to which they went that morning was empty. Nobody disputes that. The only question is why. Why was that tomb empty on this particular morning? And lots of ideas or explanations have been advanced. Some of them are not worth much consideration. Um, Like one, one is the idea that Jesus never really died. No serious inquirer and no serious historian would give that much airtime. He, it's not like he was uh, in Princess Bride fashion, just mostly dead. <laughs> no, he was, he was all the way dead, okay? Everybody who takes this seriously will accept that. But there are three sort of explanations that have survived and have passed the test of time, and they're still around with us, and multiple skeptics will, will latch on to the first two. The first explanation for the empty tomb is that Mary and the others went to the wrong tomb. Lots of people will latch on to that one. The second one is that somebody actually broke into the correct tomb, like what Mary initially believed. Someone broke into the correct tomb and took Jesus' body out. The third explanation that has stood the test of time is, is the Christian explanation, and that is the fact that Jesus literally and physically rose from the dead, and he moved himself. Okay, and put all my cards on the table. Clearly, that is what I believe. Now, let's, let's, let's kind of examine these, beginning with that first one. The idea that Mary and the others went to the wrong tomb. Besides being somewhat insulting and, and not thinking much about Mary's sense of direction here, we, ha- we have two big problems right out of the gate with the idea that, that she went to the wrong tomb. 
First, Matthew gives us an extra detail about what happened on the morning of the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 27, at the end of, of, near the end of Matthew's gospel, right at the end of that chapter, Matthew 27, starting in verse 57, here's what Matthew tells us. When it was evening, this is on the evening that Jesus died, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and then went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Mary Magdalene, who went to the tomb on that first Resurrection Sunday, was there when Jesus was placed into the tomb. She saw exactly where it was located. She had to get from there back to wherever she was going to be resting that night. She knew the way. What are the chances that she forgot, as important as all of this was to her, what are the chances she forgot the location of that tomb? Everybody? Pretty much zero. I'll go you one better. Joseph of Arimathea, who knew Mary very well, who was also a disciple and follower of Jesus, put Jesus in his own tomb. Some of you have second homes or beach homes, river homes, whatever you have. Every once in a while, you go back and you do routine maintenance around there. Joseph probably did the same with his tomb. Certainly, Joseph knew exactly where this tomb was. If there was any confusion about the tomb to which Mary and Peter and John went, don't you think Joseph would have cleared that up? At the very least, at some point, he would eventually have gone back to that tomb and realized, oh, the Roman seal that was on it, it's still there. Or at the very least, Jesus' body is still in there. That would have killed Christianity right away. All I'm doing for you right now is if you're a skeptic or you have an analytical mind like I do, what I'm trying to show you is that it's very reasonable to believe in the resurrection of Christ based on the evidence that we have. At the very least so far, we've just eliminated one of the so-called best explanations for the empty tomb. The more you think, even for five minutes, about the idea that they went to the wrong tomb, it falls completely apart. It makes no sense, and we need to look for a better explanation. So maybe we should give a look at this grave robbing idea. Now, that was a common thing. People would rob graves, not usually to take out the, the dead body, but to take out some of the things that, the valuable things people put in the tomb. So maybe someone went in there and moved the body of Jesus. Now, I hope you'll agree with me that whoever would do such a thing would have to have some sort of good motive or incentive for doing so. Especially since, as we'll see, the Romans, the Romans put a seal, an actual official government seal on the tomb. And it would be a capital offense for anyone to break in there and, and violate that, that scene. All right? This wasn't just like yellow crime, crime scene tape. This was, 
the official Roman seal it, under penalty of death. You don't break into that. So whoever was going to do that would have had the strongest possible motive or incentive for doing so. It certainly could not have been the Jewish authorities or any of the Jews who were opposed to Jesus because they were so concerned about the disciples breaking in and stealing Jesus' body that at the end of Matthew chapter 27, Matthew tells us they went to the Roman authorities and said, look, when, when he was still alive, they said he was going to rise again. And if, if, that, if, if that story ever gets out, like if they go and steal the body and make it look like Jesus rose from the dead, if you think he's powerful and influential now, I mean, if you think he's got a lot of, of, of social media followers at this point, if you think he's a troublemaker for the Roman Empire right now, just you wait until word gets out that, that he, he rose from the dead. His legend will grow to mythical proportions. We have to stop this before it even occurs. And so the Roman authority said, all right, here, here's some soldiers. You got a guard. We'll seal the tomb. Go make it as secure as you know how. And so some actual Roman soldiers were there guarding that tomb. It was sealed. You, nobody, nobody who, who did not have a death wish would have tried to break into that tomb. And so, so who would have possibly had a motive? Not the Jews, certainly not the Roman authorities who, who put all that there. It really leaves us with the disciples, doesn't it? They're the only ones that really stood to gain by faking the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Whatever trouble they may have been in, they could escape that trouble by scaring everybody into believing that Jesus guy that you killed, well, he's back, and he's, he's bigger and badder than ever, and we're on his side. You better not mess with us. They could have gained a lot of power. They, they would certainly have gained a lot of protection for their lives if they could fake Jesus' resurrection. And you... you you might even say it might be worth them taking the risk. They might have died anyway for being associated with Jesus. What have we got to lose? Let's try to steal the body and fake his resurrection. But in order to do that, they would have had to overpower the Roman soldiers. Or all of those Roman soldiers on duty would have had to fall asleep at the same time. And then they would have to do their best sing part two tippy toes to get by the guards and stay quiet as they move the two-ton stone up the slight incline that it would have been rolled down to cover the opening. And after they had successfully taken Jesus' body out of the tomb, they would have to again sneak by the Roman guards. And then there's this other problem. Think about how much these disciples loved and honored and adored Jesus. He had died. No one was more important to them. He had been given a proper and dignified burial. What are the chances that these adoring followers of Christ would take him from a place of a secure, dignified, proper burial and do something else that would amount to desecrating his body? Everybody say it with me. Zero. There is absolutely no chance this is what happened. And everybody who thinks about it for now, 10 or 15 minutes, is almost easily persuaded that this can't be what happened. 
Now, now, if you are a true skeptic, I'm, I'm not saying that at this point you're already at the place where you're saying, what must I do to be saved? I believe in Jesus. I'm not saying that. Now, it's possible. God can do that. I'm not saying that's not going on in your heart. But at the very least, I hope you'll admit, I hope you'll admit that having looked at two of the, the most plausible seeming explanations for what happened that morning, they've fallen apart in under 20 minutes. It does not require blind faith of you to accept something like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, perhaps quite the opposite. It might very well be that for the first time in your life, you need to fully use your mind, fully use the intellect that God has given you to examine this question of the resurrection of Jesus. And when you do, this is what happened with me, I found that when I did that with all sincerity, I actually lost a lot of confidence in some of the other explanations. And the very simple explanation that Jesus literally rose from the dead was beginning to look a lot more likely. Again, you will need something more than that in order to persuade your heart to come to Christ in faith and to surrender the rest of your life to Him. And God willing, that more will come into your heart by the power of God's Spirit. But at the very least... If you're honest with yourself, you're starting to say, I I might be rejecting the Christian explanation, but I'm not left with a good option myself. So I ask you, I ask you, and I, I challenge you this Easter Sunday, while all these kids are looking and hunting for eggs, I want you to go hunting for truth. I don't want you to leave this where we are leaving it this morning. I want you to go hunting for truth. I told you earlier to mark the word saw when it was talking about what Peter and John saw in the tomb when they arrived on the scene. In in verse 5, it says that the the Apostle John, who, who got there first, he came, stopped short of going all the way in, but stooped and saw the linen cloths lying there. Peter, who got there after John, he came in in verse 6, and he went all the way in and saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, to our English eyes, it looks the exact same, but I didn't know this until preparing this week. There are two different words for that English word saw that are used there. Two different Greek words. The first, describing what John did, is the, is the Greek word blepo, which simply means he, he observed what was in front of him. He physically saw what was there. When it says that Peter went in and saw It's the word theoreo. It's the word from which we get theory or theorize. Peter did more than simply look at what was going on there and what was in front of him. He began to interpret and and search for meaning. He began to theorize about what it meant. And that is what I challenge you to do this morning if you're a skeptic. To not just stop short and look at these things from a, a safe distance and the surface, but like Peter, go all the way in. And really begin to actively engage and use the mind that God has given you. And when you do, I'm confident that the Lord will speak to you and begin to show you. And begin to cause you to see what Mary, Peter, and John began to see that day. The empty tomb is one of the reasons we believe that it is reasonable to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. And then there is also the additional testimony of eyewitnesses. Mary was the first Peter and John were next. Then Jesus showed up to to the 10 at that time because Thomas wasn't with them. 
and Judas had already departed. And then he came back and Thomas was there when he showed up to the eleven. And then the Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 8. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one born out of turn, he appeared also to me. If you're just making something up, you don't say, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time and most of them are still alive. Because when I say most of them are still alive, what does that mean? You can go ask them. Now my dad was a mathematician. 500, half of 500, 250. If most of them are still alive, that's at least 251 people. You can go ask about this. Whatever game you were running is about to explode if you let people know there are 251 living witnesses to this resurrection that you can go and ask right now. You only say something like that if it's true. Would the disciples have ultimately given their life for something they knew to be false? People say this all the time. They're like, yeah, well, all right, they gave their lives. Well, Muslims give their lives all the time. Hindus give their lives for what they believe. Buddhists give their lives for what they believe. Atheists give their lives for what they believe. Everybody does that. Yeah, yeah, but, but people tend to give their lives for what they believe to be true. You're asking us to believe, if you're a skeptic, that the disciples gave their lives for something they knew to be false. I'm just not sold on that. It makes no sense when I think about it. So, so far from being the sort of Christian who, who checks his brain at the door... I'm trying to say that if you are the sort of Christian who actively uses the full brain that God has given you, or or as much of of the full brain as we can access, I I think you're going to begin to become more willing to say, this is actually seeming like the most likely explanation. You might still have a lot of questions. You might still have some skepticism. But it really is hard to deny that the best possible explanation for what happened is the Occam's razor simplest explanation. Jesus, who was dead, literally rose from the dead and is alive, and he moved himself out of the tomb. It makes sense of everything. Now, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for all of us today? What does it mean for us today? For time's sake, I'll give you three things. 
The first thing the resurrection means for all of us today is that we do not need to fear death. I'll say that again. We do not need to fear death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. Physical, fully human body. Could there be any greater dignity given to the physical human body than the fact that God himself took one on? That God raised that physical human body from the dead. Because the body has great dignity or has a, has a great destiny, it is to be treated with great dignity. Could there be any greater statement about the importance of the body? But here it is, we're told that Jesus likewise took, took or partook rather of the same things so that, and here's why, in this part of the Bible, there's a twofold purpose for why Jesus took on that fully human body and then took it to the cross. So that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Pretty much everyone I know is opposed to slavery, except for this one. Over the past two years, I'll say that I think the world has been gripped by the fear of death. Uh, more intensely than I have ever witnessed. And again, we've, we've all had different experiences with, with the coronavirus, COVID-19, from one extreme of, of never having been infected to another extreme of, of knowing very close ones who have passed away. Uh, we're sensitive to that. But I want you to hear what, what the Bible is saying here. While you and I as believers are equal in vulnerability to viruses and the illness and death they can bring, As Christians, we should not be equal in the fear of death. We should not be equally fearful of death because the gospel makes a difference precisely at that point here in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus' express intent in going to the cross, in taking on a fully human body and then offering it up on that cross was twofold. On the one hand, to destroy the devil who held the power of death, on the other hand, to deliver those who, through the fear of death, were held to a lifelong slavery. Friends, the shackling fear of death, the paralyzing fear of death, is something from which Jesus delivers his people. And that deliverance should be embodied by his people. With whatever time we have left, as the clock is ticking and winding down on this opportunity to show a difference between Jesus' people and unbelieving people when it comes to the fear of death, let's grab this opportunity by the horns. We're equally vulnerable, but not equally fearful. Because of Jesus and what we see in the resurrection, death is not the end. And we do not need to fear death because Jesus rose from the dead. Second thing the resurrection means is that our sins have been completely forgiven. If we have put our faith in Christ, our sins have been completely forgiven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised, verse 16 and verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay, Jesus died. But if he was not raised, your faith in him, your confidence in him is futile. It can do nothing for you. Least of which is deal with your sins. You are still in your sins if Jesus did not literally rise. And that means that in the future you and I will appear before God, the living judge of all the world, in our unforgiven sins. There will be nothing but condemnation and wrath for those who appear before God that way. Because God is good. God is good. And He will allow no sin to remain in His being perfected world. He will allow no sin to remain and destroy this world ever again. He will punish all of it fully. He will condemn all of it fully. And if any of it is found on us, we will have the unfortunate uh, episode of having to be condemned with that sin. But if our sins have been removed from us and placed upon Jesus when he dies on the cross, then God is going to be able to condemn our sins fully without having to condemn us along with them. And if the Bible says that you would still be in your sins if Christ had not been raised, by implication, if he has been raised, you are no longer in those sins. And verse 20 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians tells us exactly that. But indeed, Christ has been raised. The first, the first fruits of many who will follow. We do not need to fear death. Our sins have been completely forgiven if we have placed our faith in Christ. And thirdly, the resurrection means that we should all repent. That is, turn from sin and trust fully in Christ. We should all repent if we've never done it. For the very first time, you should repent this morning for not believing in Jesus and for pursuing a life of sin, a self-directed life of sin apart from Him and His will. And if, like me, you have believed in Jesus at some point in the past, we should repent too for living at times as though none of this ever happened. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is God's way of telling all of us beyond any doubt, he is alive and he is coming back. And when he comes back, it will not be to mercifully take sins from us again. When he comes back, it will be for judgment and to remain and to rule over, to judge in that sense, to rule the world with all righteousness, one leader, one sovereign, one unified government, not under men per se, but under Christ himself. Now is the opportunity. 
for those of us who find ourselves on the wrong side of this reality. Now is the opportunity. Now is the time to repent. There's still time and there is still opportunity. Let me close this way. Let me close this way. In the end, it won't be the the type or the amount of evidence that we have which ultimately determines how we respond to Jesus and what we conclude about him. It will actually be the kind of heart and mind that we use to interpret that evidence. Do you remember as we read the passage, you look at Mary and you look at John. And again, not not to say anything negative about Mary. Her reaction is perfectly understandable. But notice they both look at the same thing. They see the empty tomb. They see the cloth lying there. Mary's immediate conclusion is somebody stole the body. John looks at the exact same thing, goes in, and it says he saw and believed. He took what he saw along with Jesus' prior prediction that he would rise from the dead, and John concluded it happened. They saw the exact same thing and came to two different conclusions. If you're a skeptic still, you and I are looking at the exact same evidence and coming to two different conclusions. The thing which will finally, for you, turn your heart to faith is the power of God that invades your heart. It's not you needing more evidence. I don't want you to wait around for that. That is not what you need. What you need is to rightly consider the evidence before you. What you need is to humble yourself before Jesus and to say, Lord, it's about time that I, I, I give this, this thing up. Or, or at the very least, it's about time that I look into it more deeply. I'm going to suggest one book for you. It's written by a guy named Lee Strobel. Uh, he, he was a former atheist himself, an award-winning journalist, a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ and the claims of Christianity. In the process, he was converted to faith in Christ. And he's written about it. His book is called The Case for Christ. He's got a a lot of other books like that. Just put The Case for, fill in the blank, and he's probably written a book about it. But I, I I would challenge you, just go and find Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. The last few chapters in that book deal specifically with the resurrection. Start with the Gospel of John in in chapter 20 and 21, read that, and then get Lee Strobel's book and add that to your reading. Go all the way in like Peter did and really use that mind that God has given you. And then I'll conclude by saying this. It it is true. I believe it with all my heart. Jesus died on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. He died in our place to pay the penalty for the sins that we had committed. Shortly thereafter, he was buried that night, and then just a few days after that, he literally rose from the dead. He is alive now. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And all of us who put our faith in him are putting our faith in the exact place where it needs to be. He is able to save us. He knew exactly how to reach Mary. He spoke her name in a way that did it for her. She knew. He knew he had to let Thomas stick his hand in in, in that side. He knows what you need. Open your heart. Open your mind. He will come just for you. He knows what you need. Let's pray. Father, we've said enough. We, we, just, we pray that your spirit would take the truth of your son's resurrection all the way into our hearts. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time that really shapes the way that we live. Um, let it melt away our love for sin and let us rejoice 
along with the songwriter in saying that my sin, not in part, oh, the bliss, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for rising. Thank you for sending your spirit into our hearts to guide and govern our lives. And now walk us through the next couple of minutes as we think about these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.